Now we turn in our service to that time when we hear from God. Um, I'm going to ask you to remain standing. This is a longer passage, and so I won't read the whole thing. I'm going to read collection or little snippets from it, I should say. Um, from John chapter 12, if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to open it to it. If you don't, then there's um, the printed readings in the, uh, in the bulletin. This week we're entering into uh, the season where we celebrate um, Christ's death and His resurrection. And so it's good. Today is Palm Sunday. Um, And so we're going to look at the whole chapter of John surrounding this event of the triumphal entry. And so pay careful attention to the reading of God's Word. I'll try to call out the verse numbers as I go through so that you can follow along. Um, Verse 1, chapter 12. This is the reading of God's Word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining uh, with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of uh, his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Then down to verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and and had been done to Him. Down to verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the, the Father will honor him. Now, my, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Verse 32. This is Jesus speaking now. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all, all people to Myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. Now jump down to verse 36. The second half of it. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what He heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now down to verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in Me believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And whoever sees Me sees Him who sent Me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects Me and does not receive My words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge, on, will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on My own authority, but the Father who sent Me has Himself given Me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told Me. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we desperately need You tonight. Uh, Jesus, we need You to be Hosanna to us. The Savior. Lord, we need You to replace all of our false saviors with the true One, Yourself. So God, grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. We all want a Savior. Um, we love to hear stories of people who act gallantly and save people. Um, we have movies like Braveheart, right? Saving Private Ryan. We desire to hear stories about people who overturn vicious dictatorships. The movie 300. 
We even have a fascination with making bad guys our savior, right? Robin Hood, um, the mafia, uh, Scarface, Godfather. Recently, a movie came out that uh, my family and I love uh, called The Greatest Showman on Earth. Um, I love that movie. Uh, It's so much fun. It's great music. And uh, it's the story of P.T. Barnum, right, and the creation of the circus. Now, while I love the story, um, it brings up this deep need inside of us to find someone who provides a space where we can be, where we can be valued, someone who gives us a place where a bearded lady fits in, someone who's going to rescue her out of the back room doing the laundry and put her center stage. This is just the tip of the iceberg. We don't just look to people to act as saviors for us. We turn to things as well. We may not say it, but we act like our kids can give us meaning, right? And so we smother them, trying to make them be something. Or we think that if we could just find a husband or a wife, we would be complete. I think this one often, if I could just lose 25 pounds then I would be beautiful and accepted. If we could just all sing better, work harder, paint more creatively, or just be a better parent, then we would have meaning inside of us. We look around us for life hacks. We go to Pinterest so we can put on the perfect birthday party for our daughter. And we think, if I can do that, that will give me meaning. That will make me worthwhile. For Israel, they wanted a Messiah. They needed a Messiah, right? They were under Roman rule, being oppressed. And they desperately wanted the long-expected Messiah to come to throw off that rule and to give them status again. They wanted the glory days to return. Kind of sounds like a political, political campaign that was just run. But Jesus isn't interested in the glory days returning. He's interested in ushering in a new era. A new era when glory looks like cross and an empty tomb. And a whole group of ragtag people following after Him. When glory looks like resurrection power, not socio-political power. You see, as I walk with Jesus more, I realize more and more that Jesus' priorities are not based on my priorities. What I think is good, I mean, He may or may not agree with me. And I'm growing more and more convinced that while He loves to hear the longings of my heart, He just won't be who I want Him to be. 
our pastor, Rob, when he's fencing the table, he says that if we ask God to reveal Himself to us for who He is, and we're actually interested in that, more than we're interested in telling Jesus who we want Him to be, then God will do that. You see, what's Rob saying? Rob's saying that Jesus isn't going to be the Messiah that we want. He's going to be the Messiah that we need. And in doing that very thing, we all find salvation. In this chapter, we're going to feel the tension. As every paragraph leads us on this march towards the upper room, the cross, and the empty tomb. We're going to feel this tension between the Jesus we want, the Jesus Israel wanted, and the Jesus we need. And so, one big thought to take away from this. It's just this. Jesus is the unexpected Messiah who we all need for life. And because of that, we're free to live through faith in Him. Jesus is the unexpected Messiah who we all need. And because of that, we're free to live through faith in Him. We're going to look at this in four ways. First is the anointed King. Second is the sacrificial Lamb. Third is the Son of Man. And then lastly, the unexpected Jesus. Tonight, we're going to focus in on Jesus. So first, the anointed king. We want victory. We want a king or a leader who is going to be strong. Who's not going to show any sign of weakness. In fact, this is the image of kings and presidents and rulers portrayed in art, in lore. They don't show any weakness. You see, since humanity began to keep records of this sort of stuff, there's rarely been a king who has been known for being weak. Who's been known for his humility. Those guys are rare, right? It's the guys who are powerful. The guys who, when they're pushed against, they push right back. And we choose leaders typically because we don't want a weakling in, we, in leadership. No, I'm a total nerd. And I love Star Trek. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm a Trekkie, but I would say that I'm a nerd. Uh, I named my daughter after someone from the Lord of the Rings. So, I mean, what can you do? Um, and I was just watching Star Trek this week. And it dawned on me, who is Captain Kirk? Who is this guy that everyone goes after, right? He's the brash, strong, decisive leader who throws caution to the wind and flies straight into the teeth of the enemy. And somehow, through movie magic, everyone survives. Some people get sucked out of a ship which happens in every movie, um, but everyone's delivered in the end. And pastors struggle with this all the time. 
We don't want to let people in on what we think is a secret, which really I don't think is a secret uh, to most people anyways who are paying attention. We don't want people to know that much of the time we don't know what we're doing. Much of the time, we're just trying to find our way through life just like you are. But you see, if I was to come up here and I was to say, this is what God has to say to you and you knew about me, then I'm just as much of a dumpster fire as you are. Who would want to follow me anywhere? Nobody would, would they? Except for I think maybe you would. Jesus is in the house of Lazarus. And we see this beautiful picture. Lazarus, whom Jesus had just raised from the dead, sitting there, having dinner with Jesus, Martha's serving. You can imagine this, them all sitting around, dirty, smelling. And Mary comes with this jar of expensive perfume. This is 300 days' work is how much this perfume is worth. And she comes and she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus' feet. Why? Why would Jesus let a woman do this to him? Why would Jesus care about a woman so much? This woman. So much that she would have the pride of place of anointing his body for death. This incredible picture of self-humbling devotion and love shown from Mary to Jesus, regardless of the cost or of what others may think. Mary kneels down and she wipes his feet with her hair. Now women, (laughs) I don't think that's something that's normal. I've never had a woman come and wipe my feet with her hair. And yet Jesus... Jesus gives a woman the pride of place to do that. Humbling, recognizing her need to love Him in that way. He gives her the opportunity to do it. And you can feel the tension of all the disciples around. They're like, why? Jesus, don't you know you're a single man? 
She's a single woman. Jesus, that's 300 days worth of work, Jesus. Don't you get it, Jesus? There's earthly good to be done with that money, Jesus. All the while, the smell fills the house. It's an important detail. The smell fills the house. Just as it filled the house, that scent carries on today. It's a beautiful sacrifice. As we smell our Jesus who comes in amongst us. This was done at Passover time. Why? Because it's foreshadowing what's to come. The sacrifice of Christ for us. You see, the disciples must have thought to themselves, wait a second, Jesus. (laughs) What's going on here? Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He knows what's coming. What kind of king is this? A king that would humble himself in this way. A king knowing he would come to die. What kind of king is this? Notice how the people respond. First of all, you have Judas, the thief. The one who was to betray Jesus. Jesus, what are you doing? you know better? If you're going to be the Messiah, if you're going to set up a kingdom, you need money, and here she is just wasting it on your feet, Jesus. Then a large crowd is introduced to us. And they learn that Jesus is there. And they come not only to see Him, but to see the freak show that's Lazarus, right? I mean, here's this dude who's just died. (laughs) Now he's back. He's raised to life. When does that happen? Um, They're wanting to see. Like, come on, Jesus, do something cool. The chief priests... Look at Lazarus. They look at Jesus. They know what's happened. And they plan to put them both to death. Because on account of Lazarus and on account of Jesus, many of the Jews were going away and believing. You see, they set out to kill a man who was just raised from the dead. Put your mind around that. He set out to kill a man who was just raised from the dead. They tried to kill Lazarus. This picture, this picture of the power of Christ. A picture of this new kingdom that Christ was bringing in. This picture that we're going to read of them ushering in this new kingdom. Sacrificial lamb. Point two. Under this death threat, Jesus enters Jerusalem. The Israelites are ready to crown him as their king. 
They quote Psalm 119 and Zechariah 9. Both of these passages, I'm sorry, Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9. And both of these passages are tied together by the crowd to show their joy at the coming of the king who would liberate Israel. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. You see, a Roman ruler would have come in on a horse and a chariot. (laughs) Um, An American ruler would have come in uh, with social media. Um, And a fancy banner. And yet Jesus rides in on a donkey. The symbol of the Israelite king. A symbol of humility. And the people cry out, Hosanna! Or salvation now. (laughs) In an ironic twist, what they thought was the salvation they needed showed them a deeper reality. The salvation that Jesus knew they actually needed. This is where the connection to Psalm 118 comes in. And it's so important. Listen to what it says. If you have your Bibles, flip back to Psalm 118. Verse 25, it says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless You from the house of the Lord. The Lord is good. And He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords. Up to the horns of the altar, You are my God, and I will give thanks to You. You are my God, I will extol You. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. They're singing this out to Jesus. But what's interesting about Psalm 118, it's just a few verses before. Verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who is that? It's Jesus Himself. What is this sacrifice? What is this steadfast love? Why the branches? In the Feast of the Tabernacles, the male participants would would wave what's called the lulab. When the temple sinkers reached the crescendo of Hosanna. And this psalm was used in connection with the Passover feast where a lamb was sacrificed to signify God's uh, deliverance. The Israelites link these things together. But the salvation they wanted was not the salvation that Jesus knew they needed. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, He knew He wasn't riding in to ascend a throne, to take over a place. He was writing to ascend Golgotha to climb onto a cross. 
And there he would hang, giving himself. And a sign would be placed over his head. And it wouldn't read, Hosanna. It would read, Behold, the King of the Jews. You see, John changes the words from the quote in Zechariah 9. The original reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. But John changes it. Look down at your Bibles. Chapter 12, verse 15. What does it say? It doesn't say rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. It says, fear not. Why would John change it? In this, we hear the kindness of our God who understands our weakness, who understood the weakness of the people when they would see their Messiah crucified. They would be devastated. And he says, fear not, daughter of Zion. This Messiah is that Messiah. Fear not. You see, Jesus knew That what Israel needed was not a throne covered in glory, but a cross covered in His blood. He knew that what we needed was not a a crown adorned with gold and jewels, but a crown of thorns pushed down on His head. He knew that the way to victory, the way to Hosanna, the way to salvation now was the way of the cross. And notice the responses to His coming. There are some who believed. The disciples were confused. (laughs) Typical disciples. The Pharisees rejected Him. And yet look down at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came and they asked, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus' rescue mission was not just for the Jews, but it was for the Greeks as well, for you and for me. That means that He had you and He had me in mind when He came. Now are you starting to see why throwing off Roman rule was way too small of a task? For the Messiah, way too small of a vision, Jesus wanted a new kingdom. Not one that just spanned the little piece of earth in Israel, but one that spanned the whole world. And He did this by coming as the Son of Man. Point three. Jesus' hour has come. He knows that what he's been dreading is coming. His death for the sins of his people. Prior to this verse, the evangelist has consistently pointed forward to the hour over and over again and noted that his enemies were not able to complete their death wish for him because it was not yet his hour. Now, however, the dirge-like drumbeat leading to Jesus' death has begun to play. The last act has now started. 
and the hour has arrived. Listen what happens between Jesus, between Jesus and the Father and the people. Jesus says His hour has come. And He says, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say then? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there and they heard that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake. Listen to the heartbeat of your Savior. He understands. He knows. He asks the question all of, of us ask when we have to make a difficult decision to sacrifice for other people. What shall I say? Save me from this hour? When I was writing this, I was moved so deeply. This is the agony of the Son. And yet, He knew. He knew that what would bring the Father the most glory was for the justice of God to be carried out on God Himself. He knew. He knew that what would bring God the most glory was for His wrath to be carried out on Himself because of my sin. Because of your sin. He knew that. He knew that His death and my life was the purpose for this hour. Oh, hurting Christian. Wondering if Jesus loves you. Look no further than this. He set His face like flint towards the cross. And as He was doing it, He had you and me in mind. The Father knew that it was in sending His only Son that He and His Son would be glorified because a ragtag bunch of people, people who don't look alike, People from different ethnicities. People from different socioeconomic classes. People from different places of the country. Different places of the world. Different tongues would get together on a day like this. Gather around the prayers, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of the bread and the cup. And in that, Jesus would be glorified. Look around. Look around at each other. Go ahead, I'll wait. I'm watching. Look around. Brothers and sisters, resurrection. You, the person next to you, you are what Jesus died for to bring Him glory. Jesus this, then uses this word picture. Light and darkness. 
Verses 35 and 36. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Um, There's a great game that I love to play. Uh, It's reverse hide-and-go-seek. I don't know if you've ever played it, but you turn off all the lights, and then someone goes and hides, right? And then everyone has to go find them. Kids, I wonder if you've played this game. This is a great game to play with your parents tonight. Like, keep them up past dark. Not my kids, but other people's kids. And play this game. You see, it's easy to see people in the light. When the lights go off, it's exponentially more difficult to find the people who you're looking for. There's this mixed reaction. Some reject Jesus outright. Some believe. But notice what the text says about them. It says that um, many of the leaders believed, but they didn't want to say anything about it. (laughs) Um, For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What's interesting about this is sort of the matter-of-fact presentation of this. John presents it without commenting. And I think that John did this to force us to wrestle with what the nature of our faith is. You see, this forces us to look at these leaders and to recognize not only the weakness of their faith, but also the weakness of ours. We should be driven to see the love of God even for those who live in a place where the fear of oppression compels them to live a private faith. This struggle is seen clearly in Nicodemus, isn't it? We're introduced to Nicodemus in the very beginning of John. In chapter 3, he seeks out Jesus in the dark. He seemingly believed and then even defended Jesus in chapter 7. And yet his faith was not fully shown and made public until the end of the book in chapter 19 when he openly helps Joseph bury Jesus, the Son of Man. Lastly, the unexpected Jesus. You see now how much this Jesus, this Messiah, is so unexpected. He doesn't impose a tax. He doesn't take over a nation. He doesn't use force or brutality to establish His kingdom. He doesn't go after the rich or the strong, the powerful, the well-spoken, He brings in people who will believe in Him. You see, it's through faith that we come into a new and unexpected relationship with our Savior. 
He doesn't require perfection. (laughs) Notice who has faith in this chapter. It's disciples who don't even recognize what's going on. It's Greeks, outsiders. It's Mary wiping his feet. It's just people who want to see the freak show a little bit and then unwittingly are converted. He doesn't banish us when we fail to obey His laws. It's people who have faith but are afraid to show it. So what do we do with this unexpected Jesus? Remember what we talked about first. When we look to anything other than Christ, we are practicing idolatry. That's why we confessed the first commandment tonight. Recently, I've been studying um, the book of Isaiah. The Lord was so kind to bring this to me yesterday. I'm going to read it to you. Um, The prophet Hosea gives us an insight into idolatry. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Hosea 8, verse 4. That's interesting in at least two ways. First, they made idols with their silver and gold. Silver and gold are good things. Beautiful things. Valuable things. An idol is not, in essence, a smelly monstrosity. It's a good thing God created for us. So how does a good thing go bad? We corrupt it by the way we perceive it and feel about it. Not in our formal commitments, but in our functional, emotional commitments. We exchange the Creator for something created. We trade down because the gift, silver and gold, seems more real and more rewarding than the giver. That is idolatry. He goes on to say this. Why do we see this repeated pattern of man-centered hopes passionately pursued only to accelerate our misery? The prophets knew why. And Jesus knew why. They knew that our salvation is not anywhere in creation, but only in the Creator. God is there, making sure that the cross of Christ towers over the wrecks of time. So what are we to do with this unexpected Jesus? Forsake your idols. All those things that you think will bring you meaning and security in life, they will fail you. And they will only end up crushing you. Instead, turn to this unexpected Jesus. Tell Him that you are broken and that you need Him to make you whole. And He will answer your prayers. If you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, this means... Uh, that you must recognize your need for Jesus to make you whole. To make you right with God. You must pray to Him and tell Him that you need Him to save you. Dear friend, hear the warning 
of this passage clearly in verse 48. The one who rejects Me being Jesus and does not receive My words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Dear friend, turn to him and he will save you from that judgment. For the believer, when you look to anything other than Christ, whether it's power, family, money, possessions, sex, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, these things turn into ugly taskmasters. It will drive you away from Christ and into the ground. Dear friend, repent. Turn to Christ. See the unexpected Jesus doing unexpected things like loving you and me through our mess. May God make Resurrection Presbyterian a church that looks to the unexpected Jesus for salvation, for care, for meaning, In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.